Chapter 9 of The Castaways of the Flag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Scott Meyer, the right voice for you.com. The Castaways of the Flag by Jules Verne. Chapter 9 Bob Found. It took Miss Wollston some time to recover from her terrible shock. But Bob was restored to her, and that comforted her. It appeared that Bob, playing with an albatross, had followed it to the back of the cave. The bird made its way through a narrow passage, and Bob went after it. A dark excavation opened out at the end, and when the little fellow wanted to get out of this, he found that he could not. At first he called, but his calls were not heard. Then he lost consciousness, and nobody knows what might have happened if by the luckiest chance Fritz had not happened to hear the cry of the albatross. Well, said the boatswain, now that Bob is in his mother's arms again, everything is for the best. Thanks to him, we have discovered another cave. It is true we haven't any use to put it to. The first one was enough for us, and, as a matter of fact, we asked nothing better than to get away from that one. But I want to find how far it runs back, Captain Gold remarked. Right to the other side of the cliff, do you fancy, Captain? Who can tell, Block? All right, the boatswain answered. But even supposing it does run through the cliff, what shall we find on the other side? Sand? Rocks? Creeks? Promontories? And as much green stuff as I can cover with my hat? That's very likely, Fritz replied. But nonetheless, we must look. We'll look, Mr. Fritz. We'll look. Looking costs nothing, as the saying is. The investigation might have such priceless results that it had to be undertaken without delay. The captain, Fritz, and Frank went back to the end of the cave. The boatswain walked behind them, armed with several big candles. To make the way easier, those in front enlarged the aperture by removing some more of the stones which had fallen into it. A quarter of an hour sufficed to make the opening large enough. None of them had put on flesh since they had landed. Only the boatswain had not lost weight since they had left the flag. When they had all got through, the candles gave sufficient light for them to examine the second excavation. It was deeper than the first one, but much narrower, and a hundred feet or so long, ten or twelve feet in diameter, and about the same height. It was possible that other passages branched off from it and formed a kind of labyrinth inside the massive cliff. Captain Gould wondered whether one of these branches might not perhaps lead, if not to the top of the cliff, at any rate beyond the bluff or the bastion. John Block passed the light all over its surface from the ground to the vault, but found only narrow fissures into which the hand could not be put, so there was no more hope of penetrating further through the solid mass. Nor did the side walls of the passage disclose any aperture. The second excavation beyond the first cave was the sole discovery resulting from the incident. Well, said Captain Gould, it's not by this way that we shall get through the cliff. Nor over it, added the boatswain. And, having made sure of that, they could do nothing but go back. As a matter of fact, although it was rather disappointing not to find any inner passage, nobody had thought it likely. And yet, when Captain Gould and John Block and Fritz got back, they had a feeling of being more confined than ever on this shore. During the next few days the weather, very fine hitherto, showed signs of changing. Light clouds, which soon grew thicker, obscured the blue sky, 
blown over the plateau above by a northerly breeze which, in the evening of the 22nd of January, strengthened until it blew a gale. Coming from that quarter, the wind was no menace to Turtle Bay. Sheltered by the cliff, the bay was not exposed to the breakers, as it had been in the violent storm which had caused the destruction of the boat. The sea would remain calm along the shore, not getting the force of the wind nearer than a good mile and a half from the coast. Even if a hurricane burst, there would be nothing to fear. A heavy thunderstorm broke on the night of the 22nd. About one o'clock in the morning, everybody was awakened suddenly by a crash of thunder that made a more appalling noise than a cannon fired at the mouth of the cave could have done. Fritz, Frank, and the boatswain sprang from their corners and rushed to the door. The lightning struck quite close by, said Frank. At the crest of the cliff, most likely, replied John Block, going a few steps outside. Susan and Dolly, who were always greatly affected by thunderstorms, as many people of nervous temperament are, had followed Jenny outside the cave. Well, Dolly inquired. There is no danger, Dolly dear, Frank answered. Go back and close your eyes and ears. But Jenny was just saying to her husband, who had come up to her, What a smell of smoke, Fritz. That's not surprising, said the boatswain. There is the fire, over there. Where? Captain Gold asked sharply. On that heap of seaweed at the foot of the cliff. The lightning had set fire to the heap of dry weed. In a few minutes the flames had spread to the mass of seaweeds collected at the base of the cliff. It burned up like straw, crackling in the breeze, eddying about like will-o'-the-wisps, and spreading an acrid smoke over the whole beach. Fortunately, the entrance to the cave was clear, and the fire could not reach it. That's our reserve burning, John Block exclaimed. Can't we save any of it? said Fritz. I fear not, Captain Gould replied. The flame spread so rapidly that it was impossible to remove to safety the heaps which furnished the only fuel the shipwrecked people had. True, the quantity deposited by the sea was inexhaustible. The stuff would continue to be thrown up, but it would take a long time for such a quantity to accumulate. The incoming tide deposited a few armfuls twice in every twenty-four hours. What had lain on the beach was the harvest of many years. And who could say that in the few weeks remaining before the rainy season, the tide would have thrown up enough for the winter's need? In less than a quarter of an hour, the line of fire had ringed the whole circle of the shore, and except for a few heaps along the promontory, there was nothing left. This fresh hammer blow of evil fortune aggravated the situation already so disturbing. Upon my word, it's no go! And coming from the lips of the boatswain, who was always so confident, the words had exceptional significance. But they would not make the walls of the prison fall down to allow the prisoners to escape. Next morning the weather, though no longer thundery, was still unsettled, and the north wind continued to sweep the plateau fiercely. Their first business was to see whether the seaweeds piled up along the bastion had been spared by the fire. They had been partially. The men brought back in their arms enough to last for a week, exclusive of what the tides would bring up every day. While the wind continued to blow from the north, these floating masses would, of course, be carried to sea. But as soon as it veered round to the south again, the harvest could be gathered more abundantly. Nevertheless, Captain Gould pointed out that some precautions would have to be taken for the future. Quite right, John Block answered. 
it would be a good plan to put what is left of the seaweed under cover in case we have to winter here. Why not store it in the second cave that we have just discovered? Fritz suggested. That seemed to be expressly indicated, and that day before noon, Fritz resolved to go back into the cave in order to examine its nature and arrangements inside. Provided with a candle, he crept through the narrow opening communicating between the two caves. Who could say if the second one had not some means of egress beyond the mass of rock? But just as he reached the far end of the long passage, Fritz felt a fresh breath of air, and at the same moment his ear detected a continual whistling sound. Wind, he muttered. That's wind. He put his face near the wall, and his hand found several fissures in it. Wind, he said again. It certainly is wind. It gets in here when it blows from the north. So there is a passage, either on the side or at the top of the cliff. But then, on this side, it would mean that there is a communication with the northern flank of the cliff. Just at that moment, the candle which Fritz was passing along the wall went out suddenly in a stronger drought blowing through one of the fissures. Fritz did not wait for anything more. He was convinced if one got through this wall, one would have free access to the outside. To crawl back to the cave, where all were waiting for him, to tell them of his discovery, to take them back again with him, and make sure that he was right, was only the work of minutes. In a few minutes more, Fritz, followed by Captain Gould, John Block, and James, went from the first cave into the second. They lighted their way by candles, which, on this occasion, they were careful not to put too near the wall at the far end. Fritz was not mistaken. Fresh air was blowing freely through the passage. Then the boatswain, passing the light along the level of the ground, noticed that the passage was closed only by a heap of stones, which had no doubt fallen right down a kind of natural shaft. The door! he exclaimed. There's the door! And no need of a key to open it with. Ha, Captain! You were in the right of it after all. Get on to it, get on to it, was all Captain Gould's reply. It was easier to clear the passage of the obstructing stones. They passed them from hand to hand, quite a lot of them, for the heap was five or six feet above the ground level. As the work proceeded, the current of air became stronger. There most certainly was a sort of gorge carved out inside the mass of rock. A quarter of an hour was enough to clear the passage entirely. Fritz was the first through, and, followed by the others, he went ten or twelve steps up a very steep slope, dimly lighted. There was no vertical shaft. A gorge five or six feet wide and open to the sky wound between two walls which rose an immense height, and a strip of blue sky formed its ceiling. It was down this gorge the wind rushed to creep through the fissures in the wall at the end of the passage. And so the cliff was rent right through. But where did the rift open out? They could not tell until they had reached the far end of it, supposing they found it possible to do so. But for all that they stood like prisoners before whom the gay old doors have just opened, it was barely eight o'clock, and there was plenty of time. They did not even discuss the question of sending Fritz or the boatswain on in advance to explore. Everyone wanted to go up the passage at once without losing a minute. But we must take some provisions, Jenny said. Who can tell whether we shall not be away longer than we think? Besides, Fritz answered, have we any idea where we're going? 
Outside, the boatswain replied. The simple word so exactly expressing the general sentiment answered everything, but Captain Gould insisted that they should have breakfast first. Also, that they should take provisions for several days with them in case they should be delayed. Breakfast was hurried through. After four months passed in this bay, they were naturally in a hurry to find out whether their situation had improved, perhaps even changed entirely. Besides, there would still be time to come back. If the upper plateau proved to be as barren as the shore, if it were unsuitable for a settlement, if, from the extreme summit, no other land were to be seen in the proximity, if the castaways from the flag found they had landed on an island or an islet, they would return to the cave and make their arrangements to meet the winter there. Directly the meal was finished, the men took the bundles of provisions. The first cave was left, and with the albatross walking beside Jenny, all went through the mouth of the passage. When they came to the mouth of the gorge, Fritz and Frank went through first. After them came Jenny, Dolly, and Susan, holding little Bob's hand. Captain Gould and James came next, and John Block closed the rear. At first the gorge was so narrow that they had to walk in single file. It was really nothing but a cleft in the solid rock, running in a northerly direction between two vertical walls, which rose to a height of eight or nine hundred feet. After a hundred yards or so in a straight line, the ground began to slope upwards rather steeply. The way must be a long one for if it did debauch upon the plateau, it would have had to make up the five hundred feet or so from the level of the beach to the upper part of the cliff. Moreover, the journey was soon lengthened by the twists and turns of the path. It was like the abrupt and capricious twisting of a labyrinth inside the mass of rock. But judging from the light that spread above, Harry Gould believed that the general direction of the gorge was from south to north. The lateral walls gradually drew further apart, rendering the march much easier. About ten o'clock they were obliged to call a halt to allow everyone to recover their breath. They stopped in a sort of semicircular cavity, above which a much larger slice of the sky was visible. Captain Gould estimated that this spot was about two hundred feet above the level of the sea. At this rate, he remarked, it will take us five or six hours to reach the top. Well. Fritz replied, it will still be broad daylight when we get there, and, if we need be, we shall have time to get down again before night. Quite true, Fritz, the captain replied, but how can we be sure that the gorge is not lengthened by an even greater number of turnings? Or that it does not come out upon the cliff, Frank added. Whether it's at the top or the side of the cliff, let us take things as they come, the boatswain put in. Above, if it is above, below, if it is below, after all. This don't matter much. After a rest of half an hour, the march was resumed. The gorge, which wound about ever more and more, and now measured ten to twelve feet across, was carpeted with a sandy soil, scattered with pebbles and without a sign of vegetation. It seemed as though the summit must be an arid waste, for otherwise some seed or germ would have been carried down by the rain and would have sprouted. But there was nothing here not even a patch of lichen or moss. About two o'clock in the afternoon, another halt was called for rest and refreshment. They all sat down in a kind of clearing, where the walls widened out like a bell, and over which the sun was passing on its downward way to the west. The height now attained was estimated at seven or eight hundred feet, which justified the hope of reaching the upper plateau. At three o'clock the journey was resumed. 
The difficulties became momentarily greater. The slope was very steep, the ground strewn with landslips which made climbing hard, and there were large stones which slipped and bounded down. The gorge which had widened out considerably now formed a ravine, with sides still rising two or three hundred feet in height. They had to help one another and pull each other up by the arms. Everything pointed to the possibility of reaching the plateau now, and the albatross spread out its wings and rose with a spring, as if inviting them to follow. Oh, if only they could have followed in its flight. At last, after incredible efforts, a little before five o'clock, they all stood on top of the cliff. To south, to east, to west, nothing at all was to be seen, nothing but the vast expanse of ocean. Northwards, the plateau extended over an area which could not be estimated, for its boundary crest could not be seen. Did it present a perpendicular wall on that side, fronting the sea? Would they have to go to the far end of it to see the horizon of the sea in that direction? Altogether, it was a disappointing sight for people who had hoped to set foot upon some fertile, verdant, wooden region. The same arid desolation reigned here as at Turtle Bay, which was perhaps less depressing, if not less sterile, since mosses did jim it here and there, and there were plenty of seaweeds on its sandy shore. And when they turned towards the east and west, they looked in vain for the outlines of a continent or island. Everything went to show that this was a lonely islet in the middle of these wastes of water. Not a word was uttered by anyone before this dashing of their last hopes. These ghastly solitudes offered no resources. There was nothing to do but descend the ravine, get back to the shore, go into the cave again, settle down there for the long winter months, and wait for rescue from the outside. It was now five o'clock and there was no time to be lost before the darkness of evening fell. In the gathering shades the walking would not be easy. Yet, since the northern part of the plateau had still to be explored, it seemed best to make the exploration now. Might it not even be well to camp for the night among the rocks scattered all over the surface? But perhaps that would not be prudent. If the weather changed, where could shelter be found? Prudence required that they should go back without delay. Then Fritz made a suggestion. Jenny, dear, let James and Frank take you back to the cave with Dolly and Miss Wollston and the little chap. You can't spend the night on the cliff. Captain Gould, John Block, and I will stay here, and directly it is light tomorrow we will finish our exploration. Jenny did not answer, and Susan and Dolly seemed to be consulting her with their eyes. What Frank suggests is wise, Frank put in, and besides, what good can we hope to do by staying here? Jenny continued to keep silence. With her eyes fixed upon the vast ocean which spread over three-quarters of the horizon, looking, perhaps, for the sight of a sail, telling herself that a light might appear in the far offing. The sun was sinking rapidly already among the clouds driven from the north, and it would mean at least two hours' march through dense darkness to reach Turtle Bay. Fritz began again. Jenny, I beg you, go. No doubt tomorrow will be enough for us. We shall be back in the evening. Jenny cast a last look all around her. All had risen ready to make a start. The faithful albatross was fluttering from rock to rock, while the other birds, sea mews, gulls, and divers, flew back to their holes in the cliff, uttering parting screams. The young woman realized that she must do as her husband advised, and regretfully she said, Let us go. Suddenly, the boatswain sprang to his feet, 
and making an ear-trumpet of his hand listened intently. A report, muffled by the distance, was audible from the north. A gun! exclaimed John Block. End of chapter 9